invite you to turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 for our sermon text today. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 10 there. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this in the Pew Bible, page 917. Uh, This summer we are looking at big passages in the Bible that that talk about salvation. The whole theme this summer is salvation. And uh, we're going to be once again in Ephesians. All of them won't come from Ephesians, but these first two do. Uh, There are many great (coughs) passages in this little letter. Uh, Today we're going to focus on the theme of union with Christ, as I mentioned earlier. So let's read together, starting at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. How do you normally describe yourself? Um, Most of us have been in that awkward situation at work conferences and the like where they go around and do the icebreaker and you have to say your name and give two truths and a lie or the three most important things about you. I don't know about you, but I I hate that. It always makes me immediately nervous for some reason and I automatically forget things about my life like I have kids, I have a wife, and I cannot think of what to say. And so I don't know about you. Are you all like that? Just in that moment, I blank out. Maybe it's part of my introversion coming out. Uh, But you know, in the Bible, uh, we are told several phrases, and one in particular, that as Christians, we ought to be always ready to say, this is who I am. In any situation, no matter what the situation is, we ought to be able to say, this is who I am. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, we think of the word Christian. Itself, And that's a good word, actually. It's in the Bible. But it's only in the Bible twice. Did you know that? Christian is only used twice. This word, or actually two words that we want to look at this morning, are in the Bible hundreds of times to describe Christians. We see it in our passage three times today. Verses 6, verse 7, and verse 10. It's a two-word phrase, in Christ. Literally hundreds of times, the Bible tells us that is what defines us as Christians. We have been taken out of ourselves, 
and all the bad stuff that it describes here in this passage. And we've been put into Jesus, if you will, and Jesus has been put into us a whole new life, a whole new identity, only through faith and only by grace. So that when someone asks you, who are you, you ought to be able to say, I am in Christ. That's what defines me more than anything else. Let's consider that this morning because all of God's blessings, every single one of them, every saving blessing comes through being in Christ. It comes through union with Jesus. You can't be saved without him. As long as we remain outside of Christ, without faith, we can't be saved. But when we get into him, oh boy, it is a flood of blessings. And so look at your Bible and your bulletin at the same time. We're going to look at each of the three times Paul mentions this phrase in verse 6, 7, and 10. And we're going to see something different about it each time. First of all, uh, union with Christ shows us God's remedy for our condition. Secondly, it shows us God's purpose for life. And then lastly, it shows us how to follow God's calling in life. So God's remedy, God's purpose, and God's calling. Let's look first of all at the remedy. Uh, We see this in verses 1 to 6. And it all culminates at the end of uh, verse 6 where it tells you we are in Christ Jesus there at the very end of verse 6. And I want you to notice the contrast. Paul is drawing a contrast between what we were before we were in Christ, which you have described in verses 1 to 3, and then what we are now that we have been put into Christ. And the difference could not be any greater. I mean, it is night and day. Consider verses 1 to 3. Who we are before we are in Christ. We are dead, it says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. Notice it doesn't say you were injured in your sins. It doesn't say you were sick in your sins. It doesn't say you were passed out. It doesn't say you were in a sin coma. It says literally, you were dead, absolutely dead. There was no life. Now, obviously, it's not meaning physical life because obviously we were physically alive. We were doing all kinds of things before we came to Christ. We were making decisions. We were following our own ways. We were very active. But spiritually speaking, we were stone dead. We were dead to God and alive very much to our sinful, selfish desires. Uh, Paul describes it in a few ways. He says, we followed the world, we followed the devil, and we followed the flesh. That three-pronged, almost unholy trinity that you see listed throughout the Bible, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It says we followed the course of the world in verse 1, or verse 2. The course of the world, we all know what that means. The world is going away from God. Isn't that true? Uh, the vast majority of people, at least it seems that way, are, are completely against the Lord, anti-God. And before we came to Christ, that's who we were too. We followed, worse than that, we followed Satan himself in his ways of rebellion. Uh, the fancy title for the devil given here is the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. He's called a prince because he does have authority given by God and uh, given on loan by God. And he's over the power of the air because it's, it's picturing here the atmosphere above us to remind us that you can see certain things in this world, but then there are many things in the world you can't see. 
There's a whole spiritual realm, the scripture tells us, that we can't see, but it's nevertheless real. There are good angels, and then there are evil angels, and all of them are warring both for and against God, and there's Satan leading the way against God in the air, if you will, and here we were following his ways. Slaves to Satan, and also slaves to self. We followed, it says, our flesh, our sinful nature, the desires of the body, as well as the desires of the mind, both mental and physical lusts and desires that we followed without end. And to top it all off, it says in verse 3, we were children of wrath. The wrath of God was against us because of all this. God is against sin, which therefore means God is against sinners who are outside of Christ. And until we come into Christ, the wrath of God hangs over our heads. And any moment it could break out. And one day it will break out at the final judgment on all those who have not taken refuge in Christ. That's what it says about us before we became Christians. Which is what makes verse 4 so awesome. Look at verse 4. Where you get two words that, as we say as pastors, two words that will preach. But... God. That'll preach. And what we mean by that is I don't really have to do a whole lot of work. I just tell you, but God, and you get it. Uh, in, In the darkness of who we are in rebellion to God, there was God with mercy. There was God with love. In fact, it says he had rich mercy and great love, which prompted him to send his son, who was raised on our behalf, who was Uh, made alive at the resurrection on our behalf, who was seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God, above all other authorities, both angels and men and everything else. He was seated on high so that he could share all of that with us. That when a person believes in Jesus, literally, All that belongs to Christ by right because he's perfect and wonderful and good and he conquered on the cross. All that becomes yours by right of the covenant. By grace. It's yours. You are rich in Christ. Jesus has been coronated at the resurrection. He was coronated as king at the ascension. He was coronated on the day of Pentecost. Why? So that his people might be seated and crowned with him forever. Just like in a marriage, when two people marry, all that belongs to one becomes what belongs to the other and vice versa. And and as we say it in the vows, for better or worse. We're sharing not just what we have right now, which we're excited about, But we're also sharing all the things we're not going to be excited about in the future. That's a big promise. Well, union with Christ is God marrying his people to Jesus, wedding us to Christ. And there are no worse when it comes to Christ. He's all better and better and better and better and richer and richer and richer in health and health and health. And he's giving that to us just like the the, the lowest member of a team that wins the championship, still gets a ring. Don't y'all know the water boy gets a ring? Amen? Isn't that good? And so in Jesus Christ, the weakest believer, the one that doesn't think they're worthy at all, but yet they have a weak faith in Jesus, still has faith in Jesus and still gets the ring, still gets the crown, still gets the robe. 
Now think about it. Y'all are rich spiritually this morning. If you're a believer, I'm talking to you Christians. You're rich. And yet how bad are we at drawing on those riches and spending them? I mean, why do you think God made you rich if he didn't want you to spend it in your daily life? He wants you to spend these things. And yet, here's what I do. Uh, I define myself often more by my past sins than I do by Jesus. I look at myself and think, oh my goodness, what an unworthy person I am. Look at those things I did. I, I remember them with great guilt. I remember them with condemnation in my heart. Do you? I look at my present struggles and think, man, I'm a mess up. Those things God wants me to do, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to fully do them and be good at it. Because I'm just a mess up. Instead of looking at those things and saying, you know what, it's true. I sinned in those ways and man, it was bad. I get it. It was bad. And I am presently very, very weak. But God, right? I'm going to draw now and make a debit on that riches that Christ has given me. And I'm going to say, but God has made me rich in Christ. Those past sins washed away. Those present failures and struggles lifted up and upheld by the almighty power of God. Do y'all know how to do that? Do y'all know how to tell the devil where to get off? Sometimes you have to. Devil... You're right. I don't deserve to go to heaven. You're absolutely correct. But I am in Christ. And he is in heaven because he deserves to be there. And I'm there with him already in spirit. And I'll be there one day in body. Do you know how to tell your conscience where to get off? Conscience, you're making me feel awful guilty. And I admit, I ought to feel guilty because I did bad. I messed up today. But you know what? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me of all sins. Stand down, conscience, and hear the gospel and bow before Jesus. Riches in Christ. But God, though we were dead, we've now been made alive. Though we once followed Satan, now we are seated in heaven. Though we once followed our own body and mind and all the lusts of ourselves, now we are raised up where Christ is. Sharing his power, sharing his glory. Does that get you excited? It ought to. It's God's remedy for people like us. Now, secondly, I want you to see that it shows us God's great purpose for life. Here we see it in verses 7 to 9 where he says, again, we are in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, he says, so that, do you see that, those two little words? Uh, those words at the beginning of verse 7 indicate that he's about to tell us the reason why God does all this in Christ stuff. Why his plan is to marry people to Jesus so that we get rich from Jesus' riches. So that in the coming ages, that is in the ages to come, uh, meaning the eternal future, uh, that age that now is and which is to come, he might show or Reveal or display the riches of his grace in his kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here is God saves you for more, for more reasons than just saving you. You say, huh? Here's what I mean. 
God saves his people not just to save them, although he wants to do that because he loves us. He does it also to display, to to begin a light show into eternity, a, a fireworks show displaying the glory of God forever. And his glory is most powerfully displayed because he reached down to the dead and made them alive. Because he, he reached over to the rebel and he showed kindness. Instead of blasting us, he blessed us. And that highlights for all the world to see, the angels included, look at how gracious God is. The Bible says that angels long to look into the things that God has done for humans through Jesus. Let me paraphrase it. Angels get on their tippy toes just to catch a peek of the glory of God's grace towards human beings like us. Do you believe that? God is showing off. Your life is designed to be a life that shows God off. Which is why he chooses to save us only through union with Christ. It's so that we can't take the credit for it. It's so that we can't glorify ourselves. We must learn to glorify him. Uh, did you notice that in verses 8 and 9? He, he goes on to describe this. Uh, which, by the way, verses 8 and 9 are definitely memorizable verses. Like These are good ones to have in your mind all the time. Um, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not a result of works. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So that no one may boast. God designs to save us not with our own cooperation contributing, but without any cooperation from us, without any contribution. So that his name would be praised rather than ours. Now, I know somebody says, oh, well, that's good. I'm not a boastful person though, Stan. I'm so glad you're sharing this about boasting for the person next to me. But I'm a humble person. I know you're probably thinking it. But I think if you're thinking it, maybe you need to consider again what boasting means. Uh, a few years ago, I, um, at a general assembly, which we'll be going through this week, I, I heard uh, Tim Keller preach a sermon. And he used this example. He said, boasting in the Bible is a little bit like what... It's what soldiers do before they rush into battle. Think about that. I mean, it's crazy to think about that you would line up in the old days. You'd lined up with your weapons, and you literally ran towards another group of people lined up with their weapons to, like, smack each other in the middle of a field. That takes quite a bit of motivation to be willing to do that. And so you, you've seen the movies. You've read the stories. The king or the leader gets up and he makes this rousing speech because other than that, everybody's so discouraged. They don't want to do it. It seems really scary. But he says, for God and country. Rah! And everybody else goes, rah! And their hearts are filled with courage and they rush into battle. Keller said that is actually something that's going on in your heart every day. There's a reason why you get up and you feel like you can face the next day. It's because you have some kind of rah, some kind of boast. But here's the hitch. Most of the time we're restlessly trying to find it in created things. Most of the time we're trying to search for ground for boasting in who we are, in what we possess, in what we've achieved, in how people think about us. We're trying, 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 trying to find the reason to live. 
This is telling us that in Christ Jesus, God returns our hearts to their true rests. Because now, instead of leaving us on our own to figure out what to boast in in ourselves, God has given us a reason to boast in Christ. Because all the credit for everything we have that's good, we now know, came to us only by his achievement, by his goodness, by his righteousness. Instead of being a look-at-me person or a woe-is-me person, both of which actually are boasting, just in different forms. Notice how they're both terminating on me. Look at me, woe is me. Instead of that, Jesus is now giving us rest so that we can learn how to be look at him people. You know, I find this even in my own prayers that I have, a tr- I have trouble with this. When I'm in a difficult situation, I, I tend to pray like this. Oh God, help us to stop now. You ever do that? Oh, woe is me. This is terrible. Make it stop. End it on my terms and my timetable, please. Don't let it last too long. And I pray that way because whatever it is I'm missing, probably that's a thing I'm trying to boast in. And because I don't have it in that moment, I feel completely crushed and lost and I have no hope unless it changes right now. Whereas I think if I learn that I'm saved by grace through faith, only in Christ, I can begin to pray stuff like this. Oh God, I don't like this. You sent it to me. You've allowed it for some reason. And so God, let me just first ask, show me your purpose. Show me your will. How do you, what do you want me to learn from this? How do you want me to grow? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to help me teach somebody else? Right? I mean, those are different kinds of prayers. Look at him versus look at me, woe is me, you know, all over and over. Now, that's radical. Let me just tell you, that's radical. It's rare. Not many people pray that way. But I'm encouraged because I saw Jesus praying that way. Not my will be done, but yours. Oh, Father, glorify your name. When I am lifted up, Draw all people to yourself, O oh God. I mean, those are look at him prayers. And if it's true that I am now in Christ, his prayers are now resident within me and I can learn to pray that way. Which means I can learn to have my life opened up to the purposes of God, even in difficulty, rather than thinking difficulty is, must just be a speed bump along the way or some worthless and meaningless detour along the way. No, it's actually the path by which God wants to teach me. Which leads us to our final thing today, which is very related, but it takes us even a step further. Union with Christ shows us how to follow God's calling in our lives. Look at verse 10. 10 is a a beautiful verse, another memorizable one if you're in a memory mode. It says, we are created in Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus. And here it's speaking not of our first creation when we were made physically. It's speaking of our second creation. Christians are twice created by God. 
Another way to say it is we were twice born. We were born when we were born of our parents, and we were born in Adam and all the sin and misery that came along with that. But then by faith, we're born again in Christ. We have a whole new identity, a whole new reason for living. We're created afresh. Now notice, there's something on both sides of that. We are his workmanship on the one hand. We're God's workmanship. We're his handiwork. The word there is where we get our word poem from. Poemi in Greek. We are God's poem, which I think is a beautiful way to think about it. A poem is the work of the author, and nothing's out of place. Everything is the way the author wants it to be. The author takes great joy in his poems or in her poems. And here it says, we are the poem of God. We're we're being rewritten. Our lives are being rewritten in the way he wants them to be. Created afresh in Jesus so that the good works that he wants us to do, we're capable of doing now. In fact, those good works are themselves. Look at it, verse 10. Those good works have been prepared beforehand by God that we should walk in them. I mean, look at what's going on here. We are both recreated and equipped to live a new way. And the way that we are to live has already been prepared and blazed by God ahead of us. Both the person and the path is being remade in Jesus Christ. That's big. Let me give you an illustration that will help maybe some of the kids, but I think also some of us who are still kids at heart. I want you to think about the difference between Batman and Superman. What uh, superpowers does Batman have? Zero. This is actually why some people hate Batman. I actually like him... (laughs) I like him better for it because it just shows, man, he's a real dude, like really working hard. Uh, At the end of the day, Batman's just a guy with a lot of disposable income, a lot of time on his hands, and some pretty good ninja skills, which means, theoretically, kids, you could be Batman. Theoretically. I'm not saying it'll be exactly like the movies, but you could make all that stuff and all that technology and train for years in a cave in China and you could become exactly like Batman think about Spider-Man what superpowers does he have really webs out of the arms spidey senses sticking to walls right he's got a lot of cool superpowers how did he get those did he just train and spend a lot of money No, there was no money in the world that could buy those things. What happened? Spider, something that can't happen because it's science fiction. A a radioactive spider bites him and all that radioactivity becomes a part of his blood and courses through his veins and he becomes a whole new kind of person, a Spider-Man. This verse, verse 10, is telling us before we became Christians... We read the law of God, we read the commandments, we see Jesus' life, and we hear from people at church, be like this. And instead of a call to become Batman, which it's not, you can't, it doesn't matter how rich you are, it doesn't matter how good in yourself you think you are, it doesn't matter what background you came from, you can never be Jesus. Ever. But this is saying, when we come to Christ and we get into him, the radioactive spiritual life of Jesus actually becomes a part of us. 
He is in us, and we are in him. New spiritual life is coursing through our veins. Things we never could have done before, we can now do by grace. Things we would not have done before, we now want to do by grace. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A new creature. And here we are, oftentimes, I don't know about you, but I know it's true of me. I look at the commands of God and I still think, I'll never measure up. Well, I might as well stop trying because I can't get any better. It is what it is, right? That's the great phrase that we use. It is what it is. I am who I will be. I can't change. What a bad attitude to have for someone who is in Christ. Because you can change. Jesus is changing you. Spiritual life is coursing through your veins. That thing that stumps you right now, that part of your calling, I mean, maybe somebody in here, their marriage is stumping them right now, that they're trying really hard, but nothing's working. Maybe somebody's in here with their parenting, and it's stumping them, and you don't know how you're going to be a good parent. Maybe there's a kid that's having trouble obeying their parents. It's stumping you. Maybe going to work and doing it for the glory of God is stumping you because you hate your job. Let me tell you, there is something in Christ which is now also in you that you can draw on to equip yourself for that role. It may just be that you're not drawing on it. One writer says this, if we lack strength, we ought to consider Christ has dominion over all rule and authority and we are seated with him. If you feel powerless and without any strength, Au contraire, my friend, think about how you have all that power of Jesus in you and with you. Do you feel unworthy? Think about how he is worthy through his perfect life and death. Do you feel dead and spiritually dry? Think about that morning when he came up out of the tomb, never to die again. And you came up out of that tomb with him spiritually. Do you feel afraid and vulnerable and insecure think about the protection the security and the blessing that you now have as a citizen of his kingdom and yes he has a kingdom and he reigns we could go on all day it doesn't matter what thing in your life stumps you there is in christ riches a plenty to meet it and as a christian you can always draw on it and spend it. In fact, that's what faith is. Can I demystify faith for a minute? We, we mystify it sometimes. We think it's a feeling. It's more than a feeling. It, it does have feelings, but it's more than a feeling. Faith is actually just drawing on and spending the riches of Christ. That's what faith is. So think about that. Yeah, I might be a very inadequate parent. In fact, I think it's probably highly 10 out of 10 chance that I'm an inadequate parent right now. Oh, but I am seated with Christ. Oh, the patience of Christ is in me. 
Oh, the compassion of Christ for his wayward children. It's in me. Wow. Don't you see it? Every blessing of God, Paul says, three times, every blessing of God comes from being in Christ Jesus. As Christians, that ought to be the first thing that comes to our mind when we think about ourselves. I am a man in Christ. This week, when you're struggling, I want you to say that. My name is Stan. Don't say Stan. Say your name. My name is, and I am in Christ. And I dare you, next time you're in an icebreaker situation, use that as one of your leading things about you. I bet it'll start conversations and um, probably will raise a lot of eyebrows. But it'll be a great opportunity for you to take a stand on this is who I am because of what God says about me. Amen.